Welcome to Black Box by the Algorithmic Governance Research Network with me, Teresa Esbeculdova. Joining me today is Catherine Elbesteman, Francis F. Bartlett, and Ruth K. Bartlett, Professor of Anthropology at Colby College, to discuss her latest book, Militarized Global Apartheid, published in 2020 with Duke University Press. Welcome to the show, Catherine. Thanks so much for having me, Teresa. <laughs> Firstly, let me say that your book is extremely insightful and also frightening and wonderful, and as such, the very definition of sublime. <laughs> you trace the emergence of militarized global apartheid, a new world order that is forming around the governance of mobility, a new form of security imperialism. You show how this uh, security imperialism protects capitalist extraction, securing cosmopolitan class privilege, while creating a world of insecurity that further legitimizes the need for the expansion of this global security industrial complex, which harms the many while benefiting the very few. You show how the global north is leading the way in this for-profit militarization of everything, and how it tries to simultaneously protect itself against the mobility of people from the global south, who are systematically racialized, exploited, and criminalized. Your book takes the reader on a disturbing journey around the global landscape of neoliberal harms. It condenses these different forms of harms and injustices on roughly 150 pages with great intensity, forcing the reader to confront what he or she likely knows deep down, at least in bits and pieces, but which the reader has been conditioned to disavow and particularize and does not think systematically. You show, without resorting to any emotional charge stories, and yet, or precisely because of it, profoundly affecting the reader, that across the globe we see the same pattern emerge across these imperialist security projects pursued by the global north. Security language, or the techno-strategic language, spilling out of bounds to ever new areas it can target. A proliferation of security facilities, concentration camps, detention centers, offshore holding facilities, re-education centers, mass incarceration, further privatization of security and outsourcing of oppression and borders to third countries, an ever-increasing range of security techno-solutions and products relying on biometrics, algorithmic risk analysis, surveillance, military hardware, drones, autonomous weapons, and more, which are programmed in ways that reflect the underlying racialized logic of capitalist interest, capital interest. These technologies of power utilized by the security empires rely also greatly on outsourcing and delegation of responsibility, ensuring deniability, secrecy, and opacity, while backed and protected by enormous capital. So I'm really glad to have you here today to unpack these interconnected dynamics that you so vividly describe. So let us begin with the key concepts that you use, the global north, the global south, and militarized global apartheid. So in a way, who does what to whom and why? <laughs> wow, Teresa, that was an amazing summary of the book, far better than what I could have done. Thank you. I'm listening to you saying, that's brilliant, <laughs> the, way, the way that you just so neatly and succinctly pulled pulled all the strands of the argument together into one uh, very much. Um, yes, so the central concepts of the book, uh, I talk about the global north and the global south, and uh, and I intend those concepts to be loose, um, you know, feathered at the edges, uh, and I'm, I'm very clear in the book that these are heuristic concepts. They're a, they're, they're a way to think about these patterns that are emerging across the globe regionally. 
without trying to make an argument that the global north is some monolithic thing and the global south is some monolithic thing. So I want to be very clear at the outset that when I talk about the global north and the global south, I am not ignoring all of the connections between them or the ways in which what we might call a, a global or cosmopolitan elite uh, are, are, um, are collectively and collaboratively involved in illiberal um, their own their own interests. So having said that, I still think it's analytically useful to talk about the global north, by which I mean specifically Canada and the United States, Europe, Russia, China, East Asia. So that's uh, Japan, South Korea, um, Taiwan, Singapore, uh, and uh, uh, let's see, I forgot what I've already said. Um, but and uh, and also uh, Australia, New Zealand. Um, there are countries that you know are sort of, and, and also the, the GCC countries in the Middle East, the, the Gulf Cooperation Council countries in the Middle East, and also Israel. And so these are countries historically um, that have you know particular kinds of of histories, uh, either created through white settler colonialism um, as former imperial powers, uh, participants in the emergence of a uh, particular neoliberal global order, beneficiaries of that global order, uh, et cetera. Um, the global south, uh, I, I follow the Kamras definition of the global south, um, countries that have a historical experience of having been subject, subjected to colonialism, trusteeship, or protectorate status. So that's the basic sort of geographical language that I'm using. Um, militarized global apartheid is, an, is a, um, a way of extending the argument about uh, a world order based on a kind of global apartheid that has been, I think, very effectively developed by, by many, many scholars before me including you know, luminaries like the philosopher Charles Mills, um, the anthropologist Faye Harrison, and, and a number of others. So the, the idea of global apartheid is not a new one. Uh, but what I'm trying to articulate in this book is the way in which these structures that maintain, uh, that, that create and maintain racist hierarchy and the control of mobility and labor on a global level are being increasingly militarized and securitized. Uh, so those are those are sort of the basic the basic underlying concepts, Teresa. I don't know if there's another concept um, that you mentioned that you'd also like me to elaborate upon. No, this is perfect. Maybe in the introduction you start with the case of Somalia. Maybe you could uh, draw us in there because I think that nicely illustrates what you talk about here. Yes, thanks. That's that's a great helpful way into the conversation. So. The way in which what I call the system or the patterns or the deep structure, the deeply rooted structure of militarized global apartheid began taking shape for me was because uh, I had I had done fieldwork in Somalia in the 1980s. Uh, the civil war there began in 1990-1991. Uh, the state collapsed with the withdrawal of U.S. aid for U.S. support of the dictator at the time, Siad Barre. The country descended into um, violence and uh, and civil war, uh, and Somalis fled across uh, borders in all directions. 
And I uh, reunited with Somalis that I had known from the tiny little village in southern Somalia where I had lived in the 1980s in Maine in 2006. So the folks that I re-encountered in Maine in 2006 were a tiny percentage of Somalis who had escaped the country, survived the civil war, escaped the country, lived in a refugee camp for 20 years before being part of that tiny, tiny minority accepted into the U.S. refugee resettlement program. They had ended up in the United States um, and eventually uh, chose Maine and moved to Maine. And in the intervening period, we had lost touch with each other. My fieldwork in Somalia was, you know, prior to email and things like that. Uh, so it had been very difficult to track people that I knew. So we found each other by accident in 2006. And between 2006 and, and 2016, I spent that decade crisscrossing the United States and um, and reconnecting with folks I had known in Somalia and trying to reconstruct their journeys to the United States, but also trying to reconstruct what happened to everybody else from that tiny community in southern Somalia who had not made it out of Somalia or who had not made it out of the refugee camp, who had not been placed in a, in a third country resettlement program. And as we sat in living rooms and kitchens across the country um, on these long distance phone calls to folks still living in Somalia and still living in the refugee camp, strategizing about where people could go, how they could find a solution to their displacement, uh, this image of a globe with borders and walls and militarized um, protections against the mobility of Somalis all over the world began taking shape for me. And I thought, you know, from the vantage point of one of my Somali acquaintances sitting in a refugee camp in Kenya, the world looked like a whole series of closed and slammed doors and bars and um, militarized guards. And I began sort of pursuing that and thinking about that. Well, what does the world look like to displaced people elsewhere? And began building a picture for myself of the sorts of institutions that the Global North in particular was constructing, um, you know, prior to 9-11, but, but, but really in earnest post 9-11, against the mobility of people from the Global South, whose displacement, the Global North, had a, you know, fairly significant hand in, in engineering. Uh, and so my, my research expanded from the situation of, of war displaced refugees to um, folks who were displaced by uh, neoliberal transformations in their countries or in their home areas and their regions to folks who were displaced by climate change. Um, climate change, of course, being engineered most uh, precipitously by entities in the global north. And uh, and I began sort of putting together into into one category that you know the, the category of the mobile, um, both the voluntary and also the involuntary mobile. So a category that includes um, refugees, you know, fortune seekers, adventurers, journeyers, young people looking for a way to to have a more exciting life, um, people who are trying to support their families, people enticed by um, by migrant worker programs, temporary worker programs, and so forth. And that led to um, this effort to write a book uh, about how mobility and labor are being controlled in the current order um, through this patterning that I call militarized global apartheid. 
brilliant and you've done a great job <laughs> so, and... <laughs> so in the first chapter of this uh, book yeah, which is titled belonging you write of tying people to place and of all these legacies of white settler and colonial states of the ideologies of white supremacy even eugenics and racism that is kind of baked into the logic of border control even today i would say of Frontex and the illegality industry in Europe, of the kefala system in the Gulf states, and you write even of Filipina maids in Hong Kong and Singapore and more. And all these examples point uh, to the structures of exclusions, containment and policing of racialized bodies. So maybe you could use some of these examples and, uh, and hint at how these kind of oppressive and deeply unjust systems are also being legitimized. <laughs> Sure. Um, so as I got reading, you know, um, uh, Akhil Gupta and James Ferguson had uh, several decades ago, you know, talked about the ways in which anthropologists were complicitous in tying people to place and assuming some sort of a naturalist connection between particular cultures or particular ethnicities or particular um, groups, social or cultural groups and the places that they inhabit. And so we've had this critique emerging in anthropology for a long time about the ways in which anthropology has contributed to uh, this, you know, naturalizing discourse of who belongs where and why. And so reading my way through that and reading across um, the different archives that have been created about the emergence of nation states in different parts of the world was, was, was pretty revelatory to me. It wasn't anything I didn't already know, but I hadn't really sat down and read across the world at the ways in which nationalisms got consolidated within the territories that were created through white settler colonialism, um, or white, yeah, white settler colonialism, European colonialism, et cetera. And so uh, reading about the efforts, you know, just to take an example, um, to, to ensure white hegemony in white settler colonies of Australia, New Zealand, um, the, the British colonies in South Africa, Canada, and the U.S. was, was completely fascinating because uh, the, uh, some Australian historians, Marilyn Lake, um, have written a book about the ways in which Australia uh, was very, very dedicated to ensuring a, a white Australia and the ways in which um, leading Australian political elites traveled to Canada and to the United States, as well as to South Africa to share strategies about the sorts of laws that could, could be created, the entry policies that could be created, um, ways of establishing a, a tiered citizenship system um, or a hierarch hierarchical inclusionary system for, for the sake of workers and also to deal with people who were already living in these areas prior to the arrival of of white settlers. Um, and so this was a shared strategy. This was a, a, a collectively held belief that white settlers in these different parts of the world had the right to create new nations based on white supremacy and white hegemony. And they shared tactics and strategies and goals among themselves. Um, it was really interesting to read about that process happening across, across the globe. It was also really interesting then to read about the, the, the GCC countries, the Gulf Cooperation Council countries in the wake of um, British uh, colonialism in those places and how countries got carved out of um, these sort of alliances between emirates and tribal populations and the, the, the wishes and desires of departing um, British imperialists and British colonialists for who should be left in charge and on what basis and how belonging was to be 
was to be defined and understood in each of those countries. Um, so the first chapter tries to track this process of creating, you know, the contemporary global order of nation states and assigning belonging and mandatory and mandatory uh, citizenship to every single person in the globe. That, that's, of course, a new phenomenon, the idea that everybody in the world has to be a citizen of somewhere is, of course, the human creation. And, um, and it is, has led to the emergence of this sense that everybody belongs someplace in particular and that if you are outside of your borders, especially if you're from one of those nation states in the global south and you're outside of that border, you really don't belong. Um, you really don't belong anywhere else than the location to which you've been assigned by your citizenship status. So that, that's what I try to kind of reconstruct in that chapter. How did we, how did we as a globe come to develop? a system of belonging, of mandatory belonging for everybody? How did we come to develop um, an argument that states have the right to determine who can be within, who can cross their borders and who can live in those borders? Um, who benefits from this process and how and why? How are these policies created and wielded? And what it, what are the rhetorics and, and languages that are shared among those governments that have an interest in policing border crossing. Brilliant. Uh, I'm thinking also here, maybe we could, uh, you could also uh, use some of these nice examples that you have. I think that uh, with this Filipina mates in Hong Kong and Singapore, because I think it shows nicely that one way we speak of white supremacy, but in all these countries, it is not really the white, right? <laughs> it is racialized yeah. in different ways. And I think that very often uh, people kind of mix these things up and kind of fall for the racialized logic. <laughs> so maybe you could use some of these examples that kind of uh, show how it, this plays out in, in these countries. Sure. I mean, I think those are really interesting examples because, you know, the example that I just gave was of white settler colonialism. But the argument that I'm making is that the... Um, the muscular efforts by white settler colonists in the white settler colonies uh, were sort of object lessons for the emergence of uh, ethnically based hierarchies by other newly emergent countries or countries emerging from uh, World War I, World War II, um, with particular hierarchies in place that then could be consolidated to privilege uh, one ethnic group over another in particular kinds of ways relevant to citizenship. So we see this in, in Singapore and Hong Kong. We see this in Taiwan. We see this in Japan. So I, I, we also see this in the GCC countries. Um, I don't know if that's kind of what you're getting at, Teresa, yeah, that yeah. the way in which it's not just about white supremacy, obviously, in, yeah. in those places, but it's about deciding whose rights matter more and who, who, who sort of is the, 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 the leading, you know, the leading edge of determining um, belonging and, and participation in the, the newly emerging consolidating nation state. Absolutely. And I think this ties up to the argument in the second chapter, when you, which is titled Plunder, where you link this logic of uh, racialization uh, to capitalist penetration and extraction in the global south. And you write of the military interventions, austerity regimes, corporate capitalist plunder, unfair trade agreements, land expropriation, climate change dislocations, and even of extraction of love and uh, emotion from the global south. And in some, you write of that which makes people move in the first place. 
And you observe, I think correctly, that, and I quote here, that neoliberalism, neoliberal capitalism and capitalist plunder in the global South have created excess populations that are to be either captured for the market as cheap producers, exploitable workers, or temporary guest workers, or made expandable through forced removals and displacements, incarceration in refugee camps, or being allowed to sicken and die. And you have a range of examples, again, from narco-capitalism to, to Chinese loans to Latin American countries, which I thought was particularly interesting. <laughs> Maybe you can tell us how uh, this kind of logic of plunder ties to this racialized logic, right? And how this kind of creates these legitimatory structures, uh, I assume. So. Yeah, sure. Um, and so, you know, thank, thank you for that overview. Uh, you know, what I'm arguing is whose lives matter on a global stage. And, and so, again, just taking my country, the United States, as an example, uh, you know, we have many authors who have written about the prevention through deterrence policy in the U.S. Southwest, which is the policy of forcing people who are trying to migrate from Mexico uh, and Central America towards the U.S., um, into the most, uh, the most dangerous, uh, parts of the Sonoran Desert. And it's a, it's a policy explicitly designed to create death. People die in the desert. It's, it's, you know, extraordinarily, um, arid and rugged. And, uh, and the policy is designed knowing that its outcome is going to be either, um, horrific pain and suffering or death. That's an explicit strategy. And it's a strategy based in a, a belief that brown people who are, who are coming north, um, many of them seeking economic opportunities, uh, deserve to have to go through this harrowing experience in order to get a job in the United States, or they deserve to die, that their lives are expendable. And so the most direct connection I suppose that I can make is thinking about Honduras and thinking about the ways in which um, Honduras is sort of suffering from a, a two-pronged uh, crisis. One is the crisis of climate change, which is um, contributing to a ratification of, of areas that were formerly productive areas of farmland, forcing people into the cities um, and off the land. And then the second is U.S. involvement in the 2009 coup and the ways in which um, experts, I'm not an expert on Honduras, so I'll be clear about that, but the folks who, who are uh, talk about um, the sort of complicitous uh, takeover uh, by, by a combination of political elites and narco elites that have made lives unlivable in some parts of the country. And so um, folks who are you know, trying to figure out a way to survive this, this two-pronged catastrophe making their way north are then subjected to the brutality of the prevention through deterrence policy that funnels them into this corridor of death um, at which if they survive, you know, then they get to they get to have an off-the-books job in the United States. That that to me is just a paramount example of the dispose of the way in which Hondurans are treated as a completely disposable population. Absolutely. Then we see the same thing at the borders of European Union and so forth. The same strategies all over. Uh, and so in the third chapter, if we move there, uh, the, uh, which is titled Containment, uh, you write uh, of the various forms of interrupting and refusing mobility of people from Global South, uh, and the same people displaced by the aforementioned policies, right? So we set up these policies to to basically uh, make life unlivable in certain locations, and then you refuse uh, to take responsibility. 
And so you write of refugee camps, detention centers, incarceration, deportations, and kind of neo-colonial totalitarian control, and of smart borders, which are very trendy at the moment, <laughs> and of their offshoring yeah. even, of criminalization of migrants, of their deaths, of the brutal protection, uh, like the fortress Europe, and no less of the extremely profitable industry of immigrant criminalization and illegalization and a security apparatus that dehumanizes the racialized other in the name of profit, uh, like you, the aforementioned case with Honduras. So we have a range of these kind of examples of the apartheid logic. Maybe you can uh, draw some examples uh, on, this, on these kind of uh, instances of containment and the logic of containment uh, and uh, yeah, something like that. <laughs> Absolutely, yes. And so this chapter, exactly as you say, Teresa, looks at, okay, so people who, who are displaced, who choose to leave or who are forced to leave um, or enticed to leave by the, by the, you know, through these temporary worker programs, but who are considered surplus in that they're considered expendable um, or undesirable, um, being warehoused through these different containment strategies that you, that you list. And so a couple of, of examples that I think are really instructive and super interesting are the camps for migrants that the EU is financing in places like Libya, where the EU is paying Libyan militias to interrupt um, migrants who are trying to make their way across Libya in order to make their way across the Mediterranean to access Europe. And so here we have the EU working with non-state actors, militias, um, to incarcerate uh, migrants in conditions that are by all accounts brutal and violent and inhumane, it gives the EU rights of deniability. They're not responsible for what happens to migrants in Libyan militia-owned camps or militia-run camps, and yet they're financing them. Um, the same thing is true in Niger. The same thing is true in Morocco. Uh, another example was Australia's decision uh, because of migrants on boats seeking to reach Australia and reaching some of the tiny outlying islands, um, which then allow a migrant uh, who has reached one of those islands to be able to claim that they've set foot on Australian soil. And so rather than uh, accept migrants and you know, try to figure out a humane way of assisting people in crisis, what Australia did instead was just um, <laughs> remove all of those islands from Australian um, sovereign territory. And so... <laughs> Uh, the other thing that they've done, of course, is they're paying uh, countries in in, in um, uh, Southeast Asia to uh, have migrant camps, and they're incarcerating migrants and refugees on outlying islands uh, in these sort of migrant detention centers, you know, offshore detention centers. So the migrants have no ability to try to claim access to uh, Australian human rights or civil rights laws. So these are these are strategies being wielded, you know, by countries all over the world to keep migrants and refugees away from their borders because international um, refugee law says that if a person gains access through crossing a border, they have the right to make a, a claim to um, refugee status. And the country uh, to which that refugee, that person seeking asylum, has uh, successfully entered um, is obligated to consider that request for asylum. And so countries across the global north are investing in strategies to keep people away from their borders through warehousing them in these sort of open air prisons that are being run by um, other actors, uh, not, not the countries who are keeping them away from their borders, but who they're paying to do that work, which gives them, as I said, deniability, but also ensures that those people don't 
end up in a position where they can make um, what is their legal right uh, claim to asylum. Yeah, so we are just having a discussion, you know, in Scandinavia, in Denmark, uh, wants to establish uh, new detention camps for their asylum seekers in uh, Rwanda. And uh, Norway is now considering the same, even the left-wing parties. <laughs> uh, that uh, And, and uh, Denmark is in fact talking about zero tolerance on asylum seekers, and even those that make it all the way would be then sent to this detention center, center in Rwanda <laughs> and wait there until the evaluation of their application. So, uh, so this is, uh, and, and I mean, there is a lack of any kind of critical debate in this sense. It is almost presented as a social good, right? They are, they are ensuring good conditions and so forth. Uh, it's very interesting. <laughs> wow, I did not know yeah. that. That yeah, is amazing. It, yeah, it is recent. It was just like I was reading it yesterday. I was like, oh no, I'm reading your book, wow. <laughs> and your book comes wow. live in Norway. <laughs> And it is always fronted by immigrants. This is really interesting. It is always fronted by immigrant um, politicians themselves. I think this is almost uncanny how often this is the case. Uh, so, but yes. <laughs> Let's move to uh, chapter four. You discuss labor, and this is a topic that's close to my heart as <laughs> I work at the Labor Research Institute. And so, and you show how a global north simultaneously depends on the labor from global south, but does all that it is in its power to not only benefit employers, but also to deny fundamental rights and civil protections to the migrant workers, creating a world of precarity, uncertainty, and bondage, and resulting in kind of modern day slavery, indentured labor, and a system that intentionally creates an exploitable racialized underclass in the global north. And uh, you offer a range of examples, again, which are really striking and that reveals this dynamic across different countries and contexts. And maybe you can share some of these uh, and we can talk about it more. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, this to me is the paramount, um, undeniable example of militarized global apartheid, the ways in which countries depend on uh, workers importing foreign workers were denied um, access to you know, basic human rights, like being able to bring their families or having a right of self-determination over their own bodies um, you know, through uh, laws that make it, in some countries that make it illegal, for example, for foreign workers to become pregnant. Um, and so the, the, the suite of laws is different across different parts of the world. The most, the most prolific use of migrant workers and sort of perhaps the most dramatic set of laws that govern what they are and are not allowed to do, uh, we find in Israel, the GCC countries, and the East Asian countries. Those countries are so dependent upon importing foreign workers from the global south and so invested in ensuring that those workers gain no avenue towards citizenship, you know, being able to make citizenship claims. Um, and the, the, the ways in which those workers' lives are controlled. If two workers get married, one of them has to leave the country, you know, sort of thing. If a, if a woman becomes pregnant um, by a man who's a citizen um, or by a man who's not a citizen, uh, her baby in some of the GCC countries, her baby is taken from her, she's deported, and the baby is officially stateless and citizenship lists and, you know, placed to be raised in an orphanage. Um, you know, these sorts of policies that, that that scream you are valued only to the extent that you provide cheap disposable labor for us beyond that you were not a human being to us i mean i just i just find it astonishing that we live in a world 
where a labor force can be treated this way across the entirety of the global north. It's astonishing to me that we put up with this. And yet we do. It's normalized. And so you have some of the GCC countries that 90% of the people who live there are foreign workers who are subjected to these policies. Absolutely. I think what we're seeing is that these practices that have been kind of well-tested on people from Global South are being increasingly also incorporated in workplaces uh, where, let's say, people with the full rights are working, right? So you have the same the same type of surveillance and and so forth, and I think lots of new types of workplaces are uh, with their with this kind of flexibility and uncertainty. I mean, there's little difference in in the way uh, way the way uh, organized uh, or let's say uh, citizens are treated as well. So I think that uh, that this model is actually expanding. I would say. And it's no longer pertains only to people from global south, but it's kind of we're seeing it even even in Norway. It's kind of hollowing out of this whole Norwegian model. You know, you still have trade unions and people are largely organized, but you have more and more kind of a formalized, juridified, individualized world where you're kind of helpless. Uh, so you still have obviously rights, but uh, but uh, but I think that the this kind of security logic is. Is kind of destroying even the remains of of those that <laughs> have rights. I don't know. That makes sense, but uh, but I, I was struck by yeah, that. Yeah, no, it, it yeah. does. Yeah, uh, because the, I think that the, the 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 boundary is no less that clear, right? That uh, the the kind of mass of those exploited and exploitable and kind of uh, is just rapidly expanding, and it and it kind of increasingly includes uh, own citizens. I think this is what you see also with militarization, maybe that uh, that uh, the way which you discuss in this uh, in the last chapter, right? Is that uh, that this kind of once you militarize, uh, you kind of you kind of turn uh, the logic, for instance, policing, right? Police when policing becomes militarized, the logic of military becomes turned against the own population, right? And I think this is happening also in labor, right? This is not only the case, uh, not only the case that that gaze goes uh, at, at at the others. So I think this is super interesting in the chapter five, what you discuss when you turn to this militarized security apparatus uh, that's kind of built to maintain these uh, racialized hierarchies of labor and mobility. And you look at this border security, surveillance, commodification of risk, uh, and and this transformation of sovereignty, a kind of perverse transformation of sovereignty into a security imperialism, uh, and this kind of uh, and this kind of uh, you develop this concept of security imperialism. But what you also show that that this uh, logic of security imperialism has to be kind of taught both internally and externally, right? And I think in that sense, this uh, this militarization is interesting. Uh, uh, because it kind of turns every uh, whoever is kind of not the global elite, I would say, in this kind of a global South subject. <laughs> At least that's why I got a sense uh, it could be <laughs> the case. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Um, that that that's exactly right. I, I think you know one of the reasons that I, I think um, it's so important to look at precisely what is happening with these sorts of programs is there is their capacity for scaling up to be ever more inclusive. And so you know what interests me about the concept of security imperialism is its hunger 
to bring ever increasing numbers of people under its control. Mm. And so by, by security imperialism, I mean, you know, basically a, a, an imperialist strategy to divide the world into safe and risky populations. And as hierarchies of risk are created across all different parts of life, you know, that, that, mm. that works um, for climate change refugees, that works for refugees of, of, from other, um, from other sources, that works across laboring classes, it works across, um, uh, you know, the, the internal minorities of any particular country, etc. Um, security imperialism is about managing and controlling those populations that are identified as risky and subjecting them to, you know, various forms of intervention in their lives, various types of control policies. And some of these are extremely subtle. And so what I try to do in that chapter is, is kind of do a broad sweep gaze of the various forms that security imperialism, as I call it, is taking across the globe to, 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 to make these efforts visible and to show the ways in which security imperialism is creating a world where internal populations that are become defined by um, the governing elites as risky are, are put together with external populations whose uh, desire for entry into the nation state is defined as risky um, to create this landscape of risk management and risk aversion. And that ties together into the same apparatus of control, prisons and jails and deportation centers and migrant camps and refugee camps. Um, all populations that are defined, um, whether because they're polit political, you know, politically uh, causing political agitation, because they're unions demanding workers' rights, because they're displaced refugees seeking asylum, because they're migrants attempting uh, to gain entry to, to look for jobs. Um, et cetera, all of them become defined as risky populations because of the ways in which they might challenge the prevailing hierarchical order. And so the proliferating set of strategies for managing and containing, policing and securitizing these populations is what I'm trying to talk about in that chapter. Hmm. Yes, I think you're spot on there. <laughs> so, <laughs> so throughout the book, uh, you kind of uh, rightly link this security logic of militarized global apartheid to neoliberal capitalism. And you argue that, to quote you, <laughs> security imperialism based in surveillance practices, militarization, and a set of justifying logics is oriented towards controlling and containing risky racialized bodies while ensuring capitalist opportunities. I think that the pandemic crisis has rapidly expanded the market in surveillance and security technologies, no less in border control and smart borders are just booming uh, and has greatly also immobilized populations at the same time. So in this sense, uh, I would say that the pandemic uh, with its uh, war on the virus, which is interesting in itself, <laughs> has resulted in further intensification of securitization, militarization, and normalization of this carceral logic, right? Quarantine, quarantine is normal, lockdown is normal, and so forth, as well as of further expansion of data sharing and integration, similar as after 9-11, and of biometrics again, and, and all these smart uh, technologies, apps, and so forth for tracking and so on. Um, and so we see again uh, kind of the rise <laughs> or further rise of the security industrial complex and big tech companies who are coming out as the greatest beneficiaries of this uh, of this uh, crisis, I would say. 
And uh, you write that uh, it is uh, unlikely that militarized global apartheid can end without an end to capitalism as we know it. And you also write that this system of extraordinary inequality, uh, damage and immorality cannot last. Uh, and I think that, you know, following this crisis, it's even more interesting to ask the question of how can we resist this on a global scale? <laughs> and can we? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I, that that's a great question, and it, you know, this is this is the question I always get. Well, how do we how do we confront this system? What are effective strategies for for its dismantlement? And I think you know the the the, the past year and a half that we've all been through has been really really interesting in this regard because yes, on the one hand, we were subjected to lockdowns. Um, people who are living in prisons, you know, have been in lockdown for for over a year. Um, you know, just com complete and absolute absence of human contact, uh, contact with loved ones and families outside of the carceral facility. I, you know, it's hard to imagine. It's hard to imagine a more dehumanizing, um, just just horrible context than having been an incarcerated person during during COVID. Uh, it's sort of normalized the idea of the lockdown. It's normalized the idea of of communities police their borders to demand things of people who want to gain entry, you know, whether it's vaccines or a, or a negative COVID test, etc. So, so there's that, the proliferation of strategies being used by countries and internally within countries, particular communities of monitoring who gains access and on what conditions. On the other hand, we have also seen a proliferation of uprisings across the world precipitated by acts of racist violence and murder, such as what we have here in the United States with um, the murder of George Floyd and a number of other young Black people over the course of the year. But also what we've been seeing recently in Colombia, uh, in Chile, in, in you know, some other locations around. We're in the middle of, of a pandemic, people pouring into the streets to um, to agitate against uh, profound injustice, and so it's so I think we're you know I, I do think that we're in the midst of a real struggle over our future. I don't know who's going to win. Um, I don't know what you know what this looks like down the road. But I think it's it's actually an incredibly exciting time of possibility. I, I'm I'm a little bit more optimistic now than mm -hmm. I was perhaps a year ago. Um, I, I can see just within my own community the gains that have been made um, as a result of demands for a reversal of uh, the impositions of certain kinds of um, security apparatuses. For example, banning facial recognition software in the city where I live, removing police officers from public schools in the city where I live, um, bills that went into the main state legislature to end youth imprisonment, uh, which were successful been vetoed by the governor, but having gotten farther in the legislature than ever before, bills to defund the one fusion center that exists in Maine, which um, which lost, it, it won in one, uh, the House of the Legislature, it lost in the Senate, again, more traction than it's ever gained before. You know, electoral politics is not going to be the way that we get out of this mess. <laughs> but seeing these sorts of openings in electoral politics is really, really interesting mm -hmm. uh, and suggests that those who are struggling to overthrow this mantle of security imperialism are gaining footing. They're gaining purchase 
um, in new kinds of ways. So I, I don't think we know how this ends yet. Um, I, I'm curious to see, and I'm curious, you know, I'm interested in being part of the opposition and, and struggling in these sorts of ways. I think, I think the younger generation, you know, is, is, um, is taking a pretty hard look at capitalism, for example. And here I'm speaking just of my own country. I, I don't know how this is unfolding in other parts of the world. And, and, and who aren't, aren't so thrilled by, um, by the sort of life that a life devoted to capitalist work um, uh, offers them. And that's, you know, I'm a college professor. I, I, I teach a lot of young people. And I have never heard young people talking about anti-capitalism before the last couple of years. That's, that's a concept, again, that's, that's gaining purchase and gaining ground as people are trying to figure out, how do I want to live a sustainable life in a community based on principles of mutual respect and a mutual commitment to harm reduction, where there's accountability and responsibility to each other, um, where people are invested in the sense of building and living in community together rather than maximizing self-interest. So I'm curious, you know, it it has left me actually hopeful. Um, I don't have a read on how this is unfolding elsewhere in the world. Um, You know, being in COVID lockdown myself, of my my uh, pretty focused on the unfolding uh, dialogues and struggles uh, and languages in in my own community, and what I'm seeing here is 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 pretty hopeful. That's brilliant, and that's good to hear. So I think on this hopeful note, <laughs> we say thank <laughs> you to Catherine Bestman, and this was a talk on her latest book, Militarized Global Apartheid. Many thanks, Catherine. <laughs> Thanks so much for having me, Teresa. And thanks for your beautiful reading of my book and your incredibly insightful and, and really just, just so thorough, um, thoroughly prepared questions. It was really a delight to speak with you. <laughs> Thank you.